today I'm really excited to be interviewing M is for Mama. Her name's Abby, but you know, we all refer to people by their Instagram handles these days. She wrote a book called M is for Mama, A Rebellion Against Mediocre Motherhood. And if that just, if it makes you annoyed that she called some kind of motherhood mediocre, get the book. And if that made you inspired that she's calling certain types of motherhood mediocre and you wonder what she means and you don't want to be a mediocre mother, get the book. I can't recommend this highly enough. And we're going to talk today about sibling relationships and Abby's experience going from being one of two children to having 10 children with two sets of twins. I mean, that's kind of crazy right there, but there's just so much wisdom packed into here, and I know that you're going to be encouraged by her not only on this episode, but hopefully she'll make it into your home and into your bookshelf as well and just be able to impact you on a consistent daily basis. So anyways... Let's get started. If you guys enjoyed this episode and you're watching on YouTube, if you'd click the thumbs up button and subscribe, that'd be amazing. And if you're on iTunes, if you would go down and you would leave a review, that really helps this podcast get out to more people. Thank you guys so much for your support. Let's get going. The Now That We're a Family Abby, I'm so excited that you took time out of your day to get on here with me and to share your wisdom. I know you have so much of it, and I'm consistently looking at mothers who have more going on than I do and have more balls in the air and are just like, okay, how did they get the capabilities to make that happen? Because I feel like I'm just like up to here, you know? And so I'm excited to hear a little bit more. You're up to here too. Yeah. yeah, I feel like you're in an up to here season. I mean, I feel like even just, I remember back when the four under, what's your oldest? My oldest is four. Okay. Yo, yeah, you're, yeah, you're up to here for sure. <laughs> oh, so I want to talk real quick, like back up. How did you grow up? Were you familiar with homeschooling? Were you familiar with big families? Did it just kind of happen for you? Like, what was your introduction to the whole world of like big families and homeschooling and countercultural living that way? Right. Um, so I was homeschooled. I'm an OG. I'm an OG homeschooler. I'm 39. And I, my parents both came from hard backgrounds, from ungodly backgrounds, from very unchristian slash anti-Christian backgrounds. And so um, I, not, not completely like my mom's mom wouldn't have been anti-Christian, but her dad was not nice. And so they both came from the perspective of wanting to kind of break those generational kind of curses that were being handed down to them from ungodly parents. And they both came to the Lord fairly young ages, like in their teens and, um, were mentored by countercultural people and just wanted to go a complete 180 and do something completely different than the way that they were raised and avoid, substance abuse and abuse in general. And so um, the way that they got under mentors were people that were just stressing the Bible, stressing, you know, what Deuteronomy 6 talks about of training your children and teaching it to them and being steadfast as you walk in the way, as you lie down, as you stand up, as you eat, as you go in your house, as you go out. You know, I mean, just this kind of everyday living and breathing of the gospel and biblical um, just precepts being line upon line, precept upon precept, you know, like Isaiah talks about. And so I had the Bible read to me, um, 
read through the Bible in a year by my parents from an early age. I was that annoying kid in Sunday school that was like, no, that's not Elijah. That's Elisha. That was his like mentee and they're different. And, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, so I loved, I loved the Old Testament. I know a lot of people love the New Testament. I love the Old Testament. I love the history. I love the stories. I love the characters and the details. And so um, I was that girl. And um, then homeschooling, my parents kind of fell into that. Um, I can't even remember all the details of why, but interestingly enough, so I grew up in East Texas. I live in East Texas now. Grew up in this little town of about 10,000 people. And there was this little niche of homeschoolers there that was surprisingly strong considering that it had only been like made legal for you know five five years something like that when my mom started with my brother who's four years older than I am so homeschooling they were pioneers they were trailblazers they were the ones that were kind of beating back the legislation that was trying to make it illegal again they were picketing they were advocating for their rights as parents so really kind of front lines admirable really cool like hardcore stuff and um, for homeschoolers while well, my mom's wearing you know, the jeans jumper with the apples it's still in the front she fits the look to a T she's gorgeous but she just was like full-on homeschool mom and um so that's how I was raised in terms of people that wanted to be countercultural but in terms of like people thinking of removing from the culture or having nothing to do with the world we were so involved in sports and community theater and if there wasn't something we created it for ourselves you know my kids go to official co-ops now but back then it was like all the crunchy granola homeschool mamas would meet at the park to get their like natural whole food delivery from the truck legit and the kids would play and we called it co-op <laughs> like that was where all the homeschoolers ran around um, as far as big families, uh, people are always surprised to find out that I only have one brother and that we're kind of far apart in age, like I said, about four years. Um, but my parents would have loved to have a lot of kids and my mom just couldn't. Like she's the opposite of me. She just, her body just couldn't handle it and was stressed out and she had hyperbesis. I don't think anyone ever diagnosed her, but she has for sure what I would have called hyperbesis gravidarum, like threw up for the entire time pretty much and um i don't have that as my part of my story at all so it's interesting because you know if you just base kind of i know a lot of people it's off topic but that base what their expectations of pregnancy and numbers of children and childbirth on what happened to their mom and my mom's and my story are very very different so definitely don't do that or can do whatever he wants but but I was just always raised with this concept that children are a blessing, that the Lord is sovereign and he's the one that opens and closes the womb. So the concept of being open to children, even though I wasn't around children very much, having only one brother, was always there. And my parents were always very clear that biblically children are a good thing. That kind of answers your question. Absolutely. Wow. How cool it is. A lot of our listeners are first-generational Christians, so I think it is so inspirational to hear your parents' story, hear where you've come from, and just hear about their legacy, because it really only took them and their faith and teaching you, and that's just leverage that's multiplied so abundantly in, for their legacy. Different story than I had because of what my parents stepped out in faith to do, so I'm so grateful so, so grateful for their making that huge leap. That is so powerful. So then you get married to Sean and how, how did that look? Did he have kind of a similar 
openness when it came to kids and homeschooling and all that stuff? Or were those conversations you disagreed on? Um, so interestingly enough, so I was engaged when I was 19 to a guy that's not Sean, did not marry him. Um, he was a homeschool fellow homeschooler. Um, we were on paper perfect for each other and we were really good friends and we got along really well. The Lord just made it evident at a certain point that it was not meant to be. And so we parted ways. And I remember thinking like, Lord, if that wasn't the guy, how would I ever know? Like, how would I ever know in the depths of my soul that this is who you're leading me to? Because on paper, we should have been great together. That should have been the one, you know, and that's the direction we were heading. So when Sean came along and we started dating, he had been a Christian for all of five minutes, like three weeks, legit. Oh and if you told me that I was going to date a guy after, you know, like being saved when I was five, remembering, I know saved when you're five is kind of a thing, but I have a distinct memory of like thinking I'm a sinner. I need Jesus and, and praying the sinner's prayer. And that was the Lord has, you know, been affecting my salvation ever since. But that was the moment that I was like, like, I sort of kind of have an inkling of this. I need Jesus, you know? Mm -hmm. And so to have been at that point when I met Sean 21 or 20, something like that, and to have been a Christian since I was five and have been raised in a home where we were taught the Bible daily to a guy who sort of grew up in a Christian household, like his mom is a believer and had taught him Bible stories and taken him to church some, but certainly not had that poured into him on a daily basis and had not been a professing believer himself as a teenager and kind of questioned a lot of things and had a lot of doubts and then come to belief as a 24-year-old, almost 25-year-old, I believe, um, I would have been like, no, it's not happening. Like, we'll be unequally yoked. I will be, you know, too much he'll be too little he'll be too much of something else and i'll be too little we won't be the right but again the lord can do what the lord wants to do and so i remember very distinctly that one of the things that the guy that i was engaged to before and i did not see eye to eye on was um hormonal birth control so he was fine with it and i wasn't because of abortifacient qualities so i didn't want even the tiniest fertilized embryo being discarded because my womb was made also to it by birth control. And so he was kind of like, uh, I mean, that's probably not going to happen. So we didn't see eye to eye on that. So I knew that because I was so passionate about babies being babies from the moment of conception, that I needed a guy who was on the same page as I was. So I was going to scare John off like first, second date. I was going to be like, I don't want this to even go any further. I don't want to fall in love with you. I don't want to be, you know, entangled in this if we don't see eye to eye on this because this is so essential to me. Um, and it took that whole situation with that other guy to make me realize just this is not this is non negotiable for me. Um, and so on our second date, I remember telling John, like, I just need you to know, no clue how many kids I actually will end up with or who I will end up with, but whoever it is needs to be okay with the fact that. I'm not taking hormonal birth control. And so I could end up with a lot of kids, you know, which means that person would end up with a lot of kids because it's not just about me, but this is what I'm not budging on. And I, mean, I just straight out told him second day. And I'm like, so I, I could have like six, like six kids, <laughs> kids now. So <laughs> and um, I mean, woohoo, six. Yes, that's a legit number. But at the time I was like, that's like my max. I can't imagine anyone having more than that. And so I, um, I said that to him and he was like, okay, sounds good. 
I was looking at him like, what else? You know, like, what else are you going to say? And he was like, that sounds good to me. That doesn't bother me a bit. Like, not even phased. I was like, okay, Lord, I don't know who this dude is, but he is something different and I like it. Um, so he comes from being the middle of three boys. Um, so he doesn't have a lot of siblings either. Like I said, he has kind of um, neutral to moderately Christian background. Um, and he doesn't, I mean, his, like I said, his mom is a, is a, is a believer, but um, he still hadn't been like the same level of like parents that were like, we're going this way. So it shouldn't have worked on paper. And yet we have seen so eye to eye on things almost from the very beginning that it's, it has to be the Lord. As far as homeschooling, he was uh, he graduated from public school. He was the valedictorian of his class, 14 people in his tiny little class in East Texas. Uh, he's a smart dude. He could have been a valedictorian of a much bigger class, but I like to tease him. I was like, man, you were killing it. And um, so he didn't love his public school experience, but it was the only experience that he had. So he was kind of on the fence, like I could go either way. I could see as we've homeschooled, the longer that we've done it, the longer that he's seen the fruit of it, he's like, this is what the Lord for us. And he loves it. So we're definitely on the same page. Wow. What a cool testimony to what the Lord can do. And when he aligns two people and it's just right, you know, he, he's, faithful to finish that work too. And I just love that. I feel the same way with my marriage where you just really feel like, you know, there were enough things that we couldn't have lined up on, on our, by ourselves. And it just had to be of the Lord. Um, so you guys get married, you come from smaller families, you end up having a giant one and talk to me a little bit about overwhelm and seasons of overwhelm. Cause I think this is a big concept a mom of one child deals with it. A mom of 10 children deals with it. How do you navigate seasons of overwhelm? Is it a place? I think people, when they look at a big family, they assume that you live there. So what are some things that you do? Cause I'm assuming you don't. <laughs> what are some things you do to navigate through those seasons? You're right. We do not live in overwhelm because I don't like functioning in overwhelm. I wouldn't be a very happy or nice mom functioning in overwhelm. So I would say, um, there have been seasons when it's been more that way than others. So let's say one of those seasons is when I had five children, six and under, two of them were infant twins. Um, so I had my first two kids are 18 months apart. And we have our longest gap between kids, which is three years. And because of a miscarriage in between my second and my third, and then the Lord bless us with twins. But I was the girl was like, Lord, any kid you want to give me, great. Just one at a time, please. And he was like, how about two sets of twins? So that's another thing. The Lord knew better than I do did. And I'm so grateful for them now. But at, you know, before it happened, I was like, oh, this sound really, really overwhelming. And so um, Evie and Nola, our first set of twins, they're identical girls, um, were actually dream babies. I mean, I didn't get a lot of sleep for a while, but they were really sweet. They were easygoing. I did um, get them sleeping by it's probably like three or four months. It really wasn't bad. And um, so in a lot of ways, we were functioning really well. I've been a fitness instructor for 15 years. We would homeschool. We would go to the gym. We would go to the grocery store. I'm kind of just the girl that just keeps going. But Sean was traveling a fair bit. So I remember specifically, I talk about this in Emma's for Mama, the book. I remember specifically sitting on these super sticky floors with stuff everywhere and kids calling all over me and like tandem nursing babies and calling Sean with like the phone and the babies and being like, 
I, it's just a mess. I'm drowning, you know, and, and, and that felt different than it had before with three kids, you know, like you, I think, I think kind of like you said, people assume that you live there, but there, as with everything, motherhood has different seasons and some of them are more intense than others. And this was a really intense season. Sean was gone for a week at a time, sometimes a couple in a row. Um, and I had five little kids. None of them could do much of anything. We were homeschooling. Um, I was blogging still, but you know, that wasn't even my chief concern. It was just getting all the things done, you know, getting the bases covered and without husband there, um, some of the time. Um, and so one of the things that we did at that time was we hired a neighbor to help out with cleaning. Um, and I talk about this in the book too, that I think we kind of have this idea that we're supposed to be Supergirl in her fortress of solitude. Like you're just supposed to get it all done. You're just supposed to not need help, which is ridiculous because you are so outnumbered. And there are situations where people don't have options for help. And I know that. And you do have to kind of pray and grit your teeth and work as a team. And there are people who have their husbands deployed for months at a time. And my heart just goes out to them because that is mega hard. Um, but you do have to either level up with help if you have the option of swapping help with someone, paying someone hourly for a couple of hours, you know, laundry and sweeping floors or whatever, or you have to lower your threshold. You have to say, I've got to take things off my plate because if my plate is overflowing and spilling everywhere, breaking, then clearly something needs to go. Um, so we've done both. We've brought in help when that was a possibility. And then we've also said, you know what, we're going to have to not volunteer for this at this time, or we're going to have to forgo this event. We're not going to sign up for small group during the season. We're not going to host that like we normally would. And that can feel like failing too, but it's not, it's being wise. It's being aware of the season that you're in. Um, a couple of other times when we've just been, I feel like maxed out when we built our first DIY house, we had two little kids. I always say that my hardest mothering season when I just had two and neither one of them could do anything. So this is before I had the five kids. Um, we were building our own house. Sean was doing all the work and working a full-time job. I was doing all the sourcing of all the materials and running back and forth the property, taking care of two little kids. And you know, in that season, we didn't really hang out with friends. We um, attended a little local church because it was close to us, even though we weren't super plugged in. It was just to be there you know, and sing worship to Jesus once a week. It wasn't our most like sparkling season of producing something for others. It was kind of like circle the wagons and huddle and survive as a little family, but it was a year, you know? So I think that one thing that I get a lot of messages about are people asking me, so I'll, I'll get this scenario. Someone will message me and be like, I don't know what to do about this. I think I'm to my max. I can't handle it anymore. And if my blood pressure is rising for them, like maybe you could try this, maybe you try this. And I won't hear back from them. I'll give them suggestions, practical. I'll say I'm praying for them, which is true. I won't hear back, hear back from them. Two weeks later, they're like, oh, I think it was my hormones and it was just a bad day. I think we can try to define our lives by hard seasons or hard days when we need to keep in mind this too shall pass. This particular situation where this child doesn't talk, walk, poop in the potty, always throw tantrums, doesn't sleep, whatever, will not always be this way, especially if we're pouring consistently into the training process. So more than anything, 
I don't live in overwhelm anymore because I've learned how to say no. I've learned how to accept help. And I've learned how to have the perspective that this is not always going to be this way. I mean, this is the week before launch for my book. And I just finished photographing product pictures and I'm doing a podcast with you. And before that, I took someone to get a haircut. And before that, I was homeschooling. And before that, I was doing breakfast. And before that, I was doing Bible reading. Like from the moment my eyes have opened, it's been go, 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 go. I am paying my older twin girls to help with their younger twin brothers downstairs right now. Which I normally, like, it would be me. I would be the ones doing it with the babies. But for this week, this is how we're getting through. Will this be next week? No, because I'll have had these things checked off. So that concept of like not defining your entire existence by the hard that you're in right now is super important. I feel like for pushing for, for kind of not living in a place of overwhelm. I think that's so gold. I heard this quote one time and it was like, don't make long-term decisions based on short-term emotions. And I think so often we're quick to be like, oh, we, I need to quit this job or we need to have a vasectomy or we need to, you know, do these dramatic life altering changes based on a moment of stress and overwhelm instead of being like, let's just, let's make the decision from a good, healthy place, not from a season where the world is just super daunting. And maybe it is hormones or maybe it is just like you said, it's a, it's a week where this doesn't define your life. This is one week. And I think that's really good. Okay. So speaking of which I do have your book right here. I'm loving this, Abby. <laughs> yes, and it's been so fun to see other people loving it on Instagram too. I know our listeners are going to love it. And I talked about it a little bit in the introduction. And I want, though, to talk about one chapter in spe specifically real quick, um, where you talk about cultivating a peaceful home and you talk about sibling rivalry, sibling arguments. Is there something that you could just touch on real quick with our listeners? Um, maybe some things that you've learned around sibling disagreements? Sure. Um, this is one of my number one asked questions. And um, let me just say, all kids fight. It just, it's a thing. They will fight at times. But the point that I make in the book is that it doesn't have to be constant. And the, it doesn't have to be the dynamic of your home at all times. So if you're if you're coming in and saying, well, her kids never have a disagreement nonsense. My kids have sin natures like I have sin natures. And some of them are believers and some of them are not. And we're praying for their salvation. I'm a believer, but it doesn't mean, I was just reading in First John today about the concept of if you continue to sin, then you're not, you know, with God. And it's like, oh, wait, 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 I still said no. If you continue in it, like if you are continually hanging on and clinging to this right to be contentious, that's different than I'm having a bad day. I had a bad moment. I can repent of that. We can, we can start over. We Amen. can do a redo, you know? And how much does the Lord do that for us? Every, his mercies are new every morning. I know it's, it's overquoted, but it's because it's true. We get a redo every day that our eyes open. So having the attitude with your kids that we are always giving each other redos is huge. We do not hold grudges. We, this is not an option. If we hold grudges, like what we're holding in our hearts is what Jesus died on the cross for. Like, tell me how your brother has sinned against you that is worse than what you did to nail Jesus to the cross. And, you know, even for little kids, you may word it differently, but they're like, you're right. The, th the fact that he took my toy is just not as big of a deal as 
fact that Jesus has already forgiven me. So coming at it from a biblical perspective may seem theoretical instead of practical, but really when you start with, we love because he first loved us, like you can't really go around that to be like, but I have a right to be mad. Um, so kind speech, huge, like just making the, the insults and the putting down, not an option. I mean, you can be as hardcore as you want, but like, we don't use the word weird. Like we don't say you're weird. Um, we've got a world that says weird is good, but my kids don't think that when someone calls them weird, that's a compliment, you know? So they feel other and they feel pushed away by that. So that's not a word we're going to use, for example. And you can have your own list of words. I'm not trying to be prescriptive about that. Words are so important. Life and death are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat of its fruit. They'll either eat of life or they'll either eat of death. And so when we speak and, you know, James talks about my brothers from your mouth comes cursing and blessing. This should not be. So we're talking about consistency. We're not talking about perfection. We're not talking about getting it right every single time, although that's the goal. We're saying consistently, we should be speaking life. Consistently, we should be looking for opportunities, praise and uplift instead of tear down and mock, you know? And so that emphasis, just we're like, we're modeling, cheering. So our, our kids copy what we do. And if we're like, come on, dummy, even if it's a joke, like, how can that be a joke? But even if it's a joke, our kids are going to say, oh, mom got away with it. So I get to do that. Um, another thing that I talk about is media. So if we're modeling something, what we show our kids is also modeling something. So we're very careful with snarky, sarcastic, um, like insulting media. So a whole lot of the dynamic that you see that kind of gets so well-worn in our secular culture is very... Um, kind of bro culture like let's riff on each other let's make fun of each other it's not cool to be genuine and earnest in your praise for people and so we are constantly telling our kids the goal is not to raise cool kids the goal is to raise kids who love the lord and who are holy and set apart and look different because people are drawn to that you can get sarcasm anywhere on any street corner but genuine earnest praise that is rare and that is precious to people and those words live in their minds and their hearts for the rest of their lives i mean you know you can think of times when someone has just said something casually cruel to you that was 17 years ago and you don't even think it's still there and then it'll pop into your head you know or when someone says something unnecessarily kind and that's what that's what rings true for you like i am i am doing well you know and so the emphasis on not just not being mean, but on actively being, looking for ways to be kind, to just go for the gusto of, and you don't always do it right, but man, if I'm in my laundry room, which has like an interior window so I can hear downstairs, it's for light, but I get the benefit of being able to hear downstairs. And sometimes it doesn't feel like a benefit because what I don't hear, I don't love, or what I hear, I don't love, but sometimes I'll hear man great job you did so great good and it's just you know that warms your heart so much so emphasizing like you can make a difference in someone's life with your words and staying away from that constant like like one thing we're listening or we're watching right now because we, we do watch shows um all creatures great and small a new one so far it's fantastic um one of the best things is the way the characters that you really admire talk to each other and are so like sweet 
and earnest and kind and like hold each other accountable when they're not kind. That's a great model for my kids. I'm happy for them to see that kind of media, you know? Um, but if somebody's like loser or, you know, whatever, then we're like, eh, pass, pass, you know? So all of those things kind of building upon each other after years of it make a big difference. Again, not perfect, but the goal is consistency. I just love how much, how many different passages of scripture you just quoted in that one section there where you were sharing. And I just think that's so cool when the gospel is permeating the language that you're sharing with your kids. And it, at seven years old, like you said, there's just been this compounding layer over layer over layer. They've heard God's word. It's rung true with their hearts. They've heard these things that you're consistently putting in over time. The media is enforcing it. You're enforcing it or apologizing when you don't. And it's just such a foundation for them. And you do carry that kind of, at least I feel this way, the kind of relationships you have with your siblings. My parents would always say, this is preparing you for marriage as far as how are you going to communicate with other people that become really, really close to you? And I think we see this a lot in marriage where people talk to, you know, either their wife or their husband super disrespectfully or call them names or just, like you said, have that kind of bro culture banter instead of this, like, genuine caring. And you see the marriages that have that. Um, And I think it's just easier when you start younger and that just is your method of communication. It's not sarcastic, snappy and I say this in the book that I love this quote that I know it's not hers exclusively, but she's the one that I associate it with. Start as you mean to go on. It's like, if this is where you want to end up, you don't start over here. You start here and you go and you just keep going until you get there or as close as you're going to get. Cause I feel like we're not there till glory, you yes. know, but, um, and, and that's going to be discouraging. I just want to say that's going to be discouraging for people that maybe have an eight year old that, that they don't feel like they've necessarily done this or known to do this. And this is kind of a new focus for them. And I just want to encourage you, even if you haven't, even if you don't feel like you've started as you've meant to go on, that there is always hope that there is always, you can start from somewhere and go as you mean to go on from there by the Lord's strength. Maybe not in your own strength for sure, but in Christ's strength for sure. So I think that there's always redemption and that the Lord is always, faithful to honor those little shuffling steps of obedience that we take when something is peeled off our eyes and revealed to us that needs to be worked on. Amen. So something I want to talk about too is just teens. You have teens in your home. How are you, like, does your parenting shift? How, how has it shifted? And how do you stay connected and keep that open flow of communication with them there? sure because you are having to um, step back more and more and let them experience the natural consequences of their decisions while still stewarding your role as their parent and their authority as they're in your home and so it is um it, it it's a it's a balance that we are always striking or striving to strike well and sometimes not doing well like being too overbearing or too lax um Man, when you hit those sweet spots, it feels really, really good, though. I mean, you're having these, like, full, deep theological discussions with your 15-year-old who is hanging in there and giving you, like, huge scripture references that you forgot about. Or, you know, because, like, for example, my 15-year-old is, like, 15 going on 45. He's just so kind of mature and grounded, and he's a firstborn, just full-on firstborn. 
And um, so he started a um, Bible study during the very beginning of COVID and has continued it till now in 2022. So two years later, he's still leading this Bible study with his peers. Um, they do it virtually because um, at that point we weren't meeting in person, but they just still get on like Zoom calls or Google chat or whatever it is that they use. And so he'll be studying something more in depth than I am. And he'll come to me and be like, actually the context for that is this. And I studied that the Hebrew behind that is this. And so I think when we have only little children, and I say this all the time, when people picture me going to a park, they picture me going to the park with 10 two-year-olds and they're like, like, oh my word, how could you go anywhere with 10 kids? I don't have 10 two-year-olds. I have one almost three-year-old, couple babies, and then a bunch of like self-sufficient walkers, climbers, helpers, holders, you know, all this stuff. Um, and so when we picture raising teens, we picture having to do the same level of scripture delivery to them as we have to do to our four-year-old. And it's not like they can memorize their own verses. They can get interested in their own topics. They can do their own research. They can open up concordance. They can read a history book. They can like, and when you see all of that pouring in that you've done start to result in actual legitimate, genuine interest for them, man, that is just rad. It is so rad. And it makes it such a joyful thing to connect with them so no we're not always talking about theological things sometimes we're talking about ad lib reading videos and they're doing quotes and i'm giggling at them and we love to play card games together at night and more and more they would love to stay up till sean and i go to bed every single night um which sounds really like brady bunch altruistic like seriously your kids want it but we do not allow technology outside of supervised areas so they can't take a phone to their room um so like we're the most exciting thing there is <laughs> so, like, that's what's going on and so, it's so they like it so we stay up and read like sean's reading a book aloud to them or they listen to audiobooks together in the car so legitimately like when sean goes places like if he has to take our oldest to get his braces fixed the second oldest and usually the 11 year old go jump in the car because they like they don't need to go get their braces fixed but they can listen to an audiobook and they get to go somewhere daddy um so I dance with my 14 year old Simon. We do shuffle dances together. He is like, he's got moves and I just try to keep up. You got but moves. Like, I come up with the choreography and then we learn it. And it's just so fun. Like, it's just, I don't want to, I don't want to paint some sort of rosy picture because there are bad attitudes and there are, um, there are bad days, but for the most part, and there have been things um, with my oldest and I, we've had to work on like how we communicate, but we have, we've gotten through those trenches of when he thought I was saying something else and I thought he was being disrespectful or whatever till we have gotten where we communicate really well. And I think one thing that I would say that feels really hokey the first time you do it, it's more and more natural the more you do it. Tell your kids how cool you think they are. Like, I'll be watching my oldest kid do something or my second or any of my kids. And like my little kids, I might say, I love your face or you're so cute. 15 year old is not going to be real impressed with I love your face or you're so cute. I will just tell him, Ezra, you're a really cool kid. He'll turn around and say, you're a really awesome mama, which is not tooting my horn. But like he, he, he'll reciprocate it because A, hopefully that's actually how he feels. But B, he feels like happy because I just told him like, I love what you just said. So 
more and more I'm trying to train myself when something pops into my head that's positive. Don't just think, gosh, Lord, he's a really rad kid. Say out loud, you're a really rad kid. I love that. That's going to stick with them. And it forges really good bonds, I would say. For sure. And I can vouch for hanging out with my parents. I love doing that all growing up, all through my teen years, visiting with them, having fun with them, playing soccer or like my mom's for really good at baseball for whatever reason. Like none of us girls could play, but it just like (laughs) it's fun and you have those memories. And like you said, taking away some of the high octane, almost like junk food kind of entertainment that is easier to go to. It's like it's easier to if, if it's available to just like go scroll on social media when you're 15 years old. But if that's not an option, then it's like, oh, well, I love this. And in the end, it's a lot more fulfilling and soul enriching and bonding. And they get to carry that with them their whole life. And I love to, you know, you say, I don't want to paint a rosy picture, but I think that there's so many We want to know that the hard, you know, you talk about the hard not being the same thing as bad. And also we want to know that the hard has this payout. You know, you're putting in, you're putting in, you're putting in. And so hearing from a mother that's further along that is like, I'm still putting in, you're still pouring in, but you're also in a season where you're able to reap these blessings of your putting in. And so it's this, it's a fulfilling cycle, even though there's still so much daily action and intentionality that you're doing every day. It is encouraging. It is definitely fuel to keep going. You know, Galatians 6, 9, don't go weary of doing good for at the proper time you will reap a harvest. And that sounds awesome. And then you read the last thing it says, if you do not give up, like that's literally the last you're like, oh, okay, I gotta keep going. I'm not done yet. So, but, but you'll reap that harvest. There is, there is a there is joy in the fruit that you get to see for sure. For sure. Okay. I need to let you go, but I need to ask you two quick questions. Hopefully we can make this quick. Okay. So what is something you feel like you've mastered in motherhood? You know, something you're like, I feel confident. I've got this under my belt. I know we're always growing, but, um, I'd love to hear that. And I'd also want to hear something that you feel like you're still actively working on. Cause I think that's encouraging to hear. Um, Going places with my kids does not stress me at all. Feel like feel like we can go just about anywhere and it's not going to be catastrophic and we're gonna we're gonna handle it just fine. Um, it's take I've always gone places with my kids, but some have been more successful than others. Okay. And especially now with older kids, it's easier and is more successful. But a lot of times I don't have the older kids with me, and I still don't feel as stressed as I did when I had only little kids. So I feel like that's growth. You know, um, something that I am still working on. I started something called the gentleness challenge several years ago to work on only gentle speech and I'll get to a place where I feel like I have been really consistent and then I'll check in with my kids and they'd be like, you were kind of sharp the other day and you were kind of, so I think growing in my awareness. So by my definitions, I'm being gentle because I was being straightforward. I wasn't being rude. I was just kind of telling you like it was, and we needed to get done and get out the door. And they're like, yeah, delivery matters. So if you'd been nicer about the way you said that, so I'm still growing in my ability and always will be, I think, because my personality is very straightforward and very like, okay, I said it, let's do it kind of thing that just always going back and adjusting. And my oldest is really good to tell me that tone and delivery are the number one things that will make him. So always, always 
let your gentleness be evidence to all why the Lord is near, which is like super convicting. It's like Jesus is standing there like, calm down, gentle your tone, be nicer, be more loving. So yeah. That's so awesome to hear though, just like your humility and that you not only ask your kids to keep you accountable, but two, they feel comfortable sharing honestly how they feel. And then three, you take it and, and apply that. And I think as far as the whole more is caught than taught thing, a child being like, okay, my mom's still humble and she's not acting like she has it all together. Like I want to give her grace. Like that's just, that's so, so encouraging to hear. Abby, thank you so much for getting on today. I want people, I know that people are going to want to find you, learn more about you and follow your journey through motherhood if they aren't currently following you. So can you tell them where they could find you on social media, where they could buy your book? This is currently, when is the launch date on this? It comes out, you can pre-order through February 1st, but I am getting all kinds of pings that it is already out in bookstores and shipping early. So I'm loving seeing it in people's hands, but February 1st is the official date. Okay, so you can go order this right now when the podcast is going out. Much anywhere that books are sold, you can get a copy of MS for Mama, A Rebellion Against Mediocre Motherhood. I am blogging at msformama.net. And I am on Instagram at m.is.for.mama, which matters because other things will pull up if you don't get those dots in there. And I'm also on Facebook as MS for Mama. Awesome. So I will have all those links down in the show notes. And I just have to say to our listeners, I just... I know I said this in the introduction, but I really do highly suggest this book. I've read a lot of books on motherhood. I had an incredible mother that I feel like I run a lot of advice from. His far as I'm like, you know how I had a great experience. So I, certain things ring true. And I just think that there's some incredible concepts in this book and just encouragement. So I encourage you guys to go order that. I know a lot of you have from Instagram already. That makes me really happy. Thank you so much for jumping on Abby. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Bye. Bye.